Good morning, Mercy Hill. Thanks for joining us uh, in the 10 a.m. service or the watch party that we have on this platform. Uh, my name is Peter, and it's great to know that we're all watching this together. This is kind of the, as close as we can get to having church together uh, through this tool, and we're very thankful to have it. Just want to mention a few things and some rules and some things that are available to you through the tool that we're using now. So first thing first, we want to know who's here watching together, just as a kind of way of saying hello. So if you can just type in your name and just chat in that right-hand chat box that you see, saying hello or present or roll call, anything like that works, just to know that we're here together as a family. And if you're joining us for the first time, we highly encourage you to come check out the connection cards on the top right, where it says connection card, and that'll lead you to a kind of a form where we can uh, get your name and your contacts so we can reach out to you about any upcoming changes or news going out from our church. There's also the section for COVID-19 help. So if you know anybody or you yourself need some help or aid or assistance of any sort, please go ahead and click on that link and it'll take you to a yet another form where you can kind of tell us more about your needs and how we can help you out. And right before we get started and Nick gives his message, there's also the notes section where you can follow along uh, and there the sermon notes will be there as well. And you can have that at your ready, so you can have that pulled up as Nick is going through, or you can also request prayer. There's also a small box in the bottom of the bottom right of the display where it says request prayer, and someone will be with you shortly when you click that as well. So with that, hope you guys enjoy the sermon, and yes, looking forward to listening with you all. Thanks. All right, well, good morning, Mercy Hill. Uh, my name's Nick, I'm lead pastor here, and I'll be getting us into God's Word uh, yet again. And I have to say, um, I don't know about you guys, but man, I really miss you. Um, I can only take preaching to a camera for so long before it's just like, man, where are my people at? I, I love you guys, um, thinking about you guys. I wish that we could... Be together, and I'm aware that um, some things may be shifting around here soon um, with the shelter-in-place order. And just just so you know, you can always stay uh, up to date. We'll be putting our stuff online. We'll be sending things out in the newsletter, which you can sign up um, for that on the uh, connection card. If you're in, tuning into the watch party, like Peter mentioned, uh, the little connection card link, you can get on our newsletter if you want to stay up to date with what what the plans are going forward. Because even when they or if they um, drop that shelter-in-place order, uh, it's not clear what's going to come uh, for us with the school or with gatherings and other things. So just be in prayer for us um, and definitely hope that sooner than later we'll be able to uh, meet again face-to-face, -face, albeit with, um, with some precautions and other things like that in place. So I think the only other thing I'd say is um, after today's message, um, remember we do have the, the little thing we're calling the after-party um, we're not cracking open champagne or anything. We're just, uh, it's a time for prayer, discussion, that sort of thing. And week to week, it may look different. And actually, after today's message, um, what we're going to have going on in there, we're going to have uh, Peter actually singing a few songs. So uh, it should be kind of fun. And then we'll, we'll engage in a time of prayer together as well. Uh, so I'd encourage you to, to plan on, on jumping in on that immediately following this. But let's get in. So this morning, we are going to be in Isaiah 41. Uh, verse 14 is really going to be the central focus, although you'll see quite quickly, I'm again going to kind of bring in the context to help us 
uh, as we make our way through it. But we're in our Do Not Be Afraid series. Uh, We're in Isaiah 41, verse 14. Um, You can find that in the little Bible tab on the online platform, or you can obviously pull out your Bible and, and follow along. But I would recommend staying in Isaiah 40, 41, 42, because we're going to kind of be in those chapters um, off and on this morning. Isaiah 41, verse 14. Let me read it, pray, and then I'll, I'll get us in. God says this through the prophet Isaiah. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, um, I recognize that tucked within that there's immediate affronts to our sensibilities, that you would refer to us as worms, and uh, some might already be ready to check out just having heard you say that, and the fact that I'm accenting it. But Lord, I, I pray today we'd see really your heart in this verse. Uh, I pray, God, that we'd see uh, how you're you're trying to move us from self-reliance towards you uh, and a full dependence upon the Father, the God who cares, the only one who can actually help in times of trial and suffering, fear. And so, uh, Lord, I just ask that we'd all, as I've just kind of been praying, we'd all continue to kind of experience through the course of these messages, just you transferring us from a place of fear uh, to a place of courage and hope and and comfort uh, where we are able to be uh, strengthened in you and move out as strong witnesses for you. So Jesus, meet us today right where we're at. We don't gotta clean up. It's what we love about the gospel. We don't have to clean up to come to you. We come to you so that you'll clean us up. (laughs) And that's where we are here this morning. God, just wanting you to come, draw near, Draw near to us in the mess and help us through this. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Um, Okay, so it seems to me that if we are ever to truly receive help uh, in our times of trial and fear, uh, times of suffering, hardship, whatever, uh, that two things are essentially necessary. Uh, The first thing that needs to happen Uh, if we're going to be helped, is we're actually going to have to start to get a more realistic perspective on ourselves. And usually what that means is we need to see truly how small, how insignificant, how powerless, and even how sinful uh, and vile we really are. That's Step number one, we, we need to kind of come to see our, our true place in the world. We need to be uh, deflated of, of, of oftentimes our own inflated sense of you know, who we are and all that. We need to get re- a dose of reality, see ourselves as we really are. Uh, but then the second thing is that we actually need to come to see God. We need to see more of him. We need to see, we need a a fresh vision, a fresh sighting of his glory and his grace as it's displayed preeminently for us in Jesus. So we don't just need to, I I guess you could kind of put it this way, uh, we, we essentially need to see less of ourselves and more of God. Less of me, more of him. 
Now, I know that often in trial, by nature and by reflex, we tend to kind of move in the opposite direction. And, and what I mean by that is this. When, when hardship or something dreadful comes upon us, we instinctively feel like we've got to be the one to rise up. Uh, we've got to be the one to kind of step up to the plate and meet the challenge. We feel like the resources to come against this or to get us through this or whatever it may be have to be found within me somehow. We feel like I've got to get bigger. If I'm going to overcome this, I've got to get bigger, not smaller. We've got to draw up our, our plans and, and take action, right? That's, that's typically how I think we respond when we're in, you know, in, in, in serious trial and, and struggle. Uh, the sense is, I've got to figure it out. I've got to come up with the plan. And so I know that there are going to be uh, people who look at what I'm proposing here at the beginning of this message, that you actually need less of you and more of God, and you're going to say, listen, that sounds nice, but it's not practical enough. I don't just need a fresh vision of God. I don't, I don't need uh, to sit around musing on the divine. I don't need another theological lesson. What I need is an action plan. What I need are practical steps I can take to fix what's broken. You give me that, Nick, and then we'll, then, then we'll have something. But until then, it seems irrelevant. To talk about God and his glory, oh great, that's wonderful. That's good for church services, but not for the street, not for the valley, not for the, the, the trial and the suffering that I am in and, and facing right now. Show me what to do. Tell me how to fix this stuff. Give me that action plan. Now, on the surface, that may seem like a solution. It masquerades as, as, as a big part of the solution that, that, hey, we got this action, but we got these steps. But actually what we come to find is that left unchecked, that's actually a very big part of the problem. This, uh, this self-reliance, this self-focus that we have just by nature, just by virtue of our own sin and our own kind of reflexes to stuff, we just naturally want to make a bigger deal out of us, think that we're more important than we are. We naturally have this self-focus, this self-concern, this self-reliance, this uh, self-sort of aggrandizement, and we, we, we try to pull off that whole self-help thing. And we get ourselves into trouble. And that's the irony. Even though all of this is kind of centered on self, at the end of the day, we end up kind of pillaging ourselves of our peace and of our joy and of our comfort when we get bigger and God kind of shrinks from view because he seems irrelevant to us. What we need in moments of trial and hardship is not more of ourselves, it's more of God. And we need that now more than ever, I think. Um, I, I, I find it quite amazing. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how well you guys know the book of Isaiah, but the book actually quite nicely divides into two or three parts. Um, 
And really the first is composed of chapters one through 39. And um, there what we see is the prophet Isaiah is, is kind of confronting especially the people there in, in Judah, uh, in Jerusalem. And he's talking about how, hey listen, he's warning them, if, if you uh, don't turn from your covenant infidelity, if you don't turn from your sin and things, uh, judgment is coming. Uh, if you don't repent and return to God with faith and obedience, judgment is coming. And, and he warns first really concerning uh, the Assyrians that they're going to come and attack the city. Uh, but then he especially warns of the Babylonians that uh, these Babylonians, he says, are going to sack the holy city. They're going to plunder its treasures and carry its people off into Exile, and that's really how the opening section of uh, of Isaiah uh, ends. Really, chapter thirty nine ends with this almost ominous prophetic note uh, being struck by the prophet Isaiah as he's talking to King Hezekiah. He says this in verses six and seven, Isaiah thirty nine: "Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house." And that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom your father, or whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So he basically says, listen, all this stuff and even its people, uh, the king of Babylon is gonna come, he's gonna sack this place, he's gonna take it and he's gonna bring all its stuff as well as your, your kids and, and your people back with him into exile there in Babylon. And we know this comes to pass, 586 BC, a little over a century after Isaiah probably uttered these words. He, uh, Nebuchadnezzar rolls up on Jerusalem, unleashes the full wrath of the Babylonian Empire and, and, and raises it to the ground, right? Raises it to the ground. But then in verse, uh, or I'm sorry, in chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah, it's as if the prophet suddenly kind of shifts gears for us. And this is gonna kind of move us into the section that we find ourselves in as we're gonna uh, focus a little bit on um, that verse in Isaiah 41. But in Isaiah 40, something changes. And all scholars note this, something shifts and all of a sudden, the prophet, as it were, is kind of addressing not necessarily the, the, the crew immediately in front of him, like King Hezekiah, but now he starts to talk, actually, uh, uh, prophetically uh, to those who will be in exile. This exile is coming. He says, and now let me talk to those of you who are gonna be in that exile. And so in, in chapter 40, things start to shift and he's addressing these exiles now. And here's how chapter 40 begins in verse one. It is amazing. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And you and I say, comfort. Isn't that what we want? God, that is what we want. We want what chapter 40 begins with. 
We want the declaration of comfort over our lives. We want you to bring comfort to us in this place. I mean, gosh, we are still dealing and we will for some time be dealing with this pandemic and all of its ramifications, whether that's just for our world in general or our city or our families, watching it affect our community, watching it affect our jobs, our finances. We continue to face this and we go, gosh, I could use a little comfort right now. I could use a little help. I could use a little bit of what you've been talking about here, Nick. I want help in the midst of trial. How do I get it? Where does this comfort come from? And what I love about this is that as you follow along with Isaiah here in the flow of thought in chapter 40, it's the same two things that I brought out um, at the beginning of this message. We watch that how he's going to bring help, how this comfort is going to come is not the way we often think, like give me some practical stuff, no. Where Isaiah goes is to first say, okay, you need less of yourselves and you need a fresh sighting of God. So here's what we see, verses six and seven of Isaiah 40. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. So what am I supposed to cry? Okay, I'm gonna bring comfort through you, Isaiah. Here it comes. <laughs> and he goes, I want you to, I want you to start to declare, I want you to start to proclaim something to these people in exile. Isaiah says, what shall I proclaim? And God says, okay, here's what you need to say. All flesh is grass. Grass withers, flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, all people, just grass. Make sure that people know that they're small, that they don't have what it takes, that, that they're not gonna find the resources in themselves to get out of this mess. Make sure, that's part one of this message of comfort. It's strange, but it's where God goes first. There's weakness, there's, there's, there's transience in the human condition, and we need to know about it, we need to face it. But that's just part one. Part two of this message of comfort, he keeps going there in chapter 40. In verse nine, uh, we see this. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, here it is, behold your God. So part one is, listen, take your eyes off yourself. You're fleeting and small and weak. But now part two is, here's what you do need to put your eyes upon. Behold your God. He's coming in might. He's coming in power. He's coming in glory for you. That's how you're going to get comfort in the place of exile, in the place of trial. That's where it comes from. And what's awesome is that these two realities, and you may have noticed it, are actually brought together most potently, even most scandalously in our verse this morning. Isaiah 41, verse 14, let me just read it again. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Less of me, 
more of God equals no fear, comfort, consolation, courage, strength, peace, hope, joy, and on you could go. Is that what you want in your current trial? Man, is anybody else gonna feel like they're living in exile? I'm in my home, right? We're in our homes, but it kind of feels like you're in exile, even here, right? We need this. Well, then we better listen up. We better listen to what God has to teach us in these chapters and in this verse in particular. Now, it's really the essence, I know it's a long introduction, but it's really the essence of of all that we're gonna be bringing out here this morning. Uh, is what I was just sharing, and these two realities is the way to comfort and consolation. But um, what I'm going to do as we try to make our way into these things is I'm, I'm going to kind of locate this verse within the larger context of these surrounding chapters in Isaiah, and we'll be making our way through three headings in particular. First, accusation. Second, temptation. And then third, redemption. So let's begin with this idea of accusation. Uh, I'm going to try to move quickly through these first two and and spend a little more time on the third if I can. Uh, But accusation, uh, really all I want to do here is is help us kind of enter into what Israel would have been feeling in, in their place of exile. Um, so you remember exile in Babylon, uh, it had been a long, long time. It had been many, many decades now, and it actually would have been probably, um, I think it was from 586 when they kind of were, were ushered off, taken captive to Babylon, and then you have 516 BC, I think, when the temple was finally rebuilt and things there in Jerusalem. So you've got a good 70 years where the people are, are distraught, where the people Things are not going well for them. And as year piled upon year, the the burden kind of got heavier on their soul, it would seem, right? As we can understand. And one of the things that starts to happen in that place is is that they start to accuse God. And I think we can relate, right? We, We accuse God sometimes when we're suffering and we don't understand why. We don't get it fully. We don't know what's going on. And the accusation really, as we'll see, is, is, is that God has forgotten them, that God has abandoned them, that he's not here. Sure, he said, you know, we're his covenant people. He said that he's gracious and merciful. He'll forgive. He said that he's not going to forsake Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We said all of those things, but here we are, forsaken and forgotten. And this accusation really, I think, is what um, Isaiah identifies for us. Isaiah 40, verse 27. This is God talking to Israel. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? So that's what they've been saying in exile. This is why they need comfort. This is why God has to come. They've been saying, God has forgotten. My way is hidden. God is not going to come and plead our case like he said he was. He's left us here. I thought at this point of um, Psalm 137, which is this pretty powerful, even kind of gruesome psalm, 
but uh, I'm not going to read it like I, th- I thought maybe I would. Essentially, all, all that they're saying there is, is listen, our, our Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon, our, our captors were asking us to sing and dance and put on a show for them, but we said no way. We hung up our instruments and we said, we're not gonna sing in a foreign land. We're saving our songs for Jerusalem. And it kind of ends with this idea of, listen, if I don't remember you, O Jerusalem, if I don't set Jerusalem above my highest joy, then let my tongue stick to its mouth. Let me not even be able to sing. Let me not even be able to play. In other words, we're not gonna forget our God and our city. We're not gonna forget, and I think the reason why I, I, I bring this up here is because I think part of the pain is that their claim is we're gonna hold on, we're gonna stay true, but then as the years went on, the feeling was, man, we've tried to remember uh, Jerusalem, we've tried to remember God, but God has forgotten us. God is far from us. Our way is hidden. He's not going to come. And I wonder, my goodness, haven't you felt similarly at times? I mean, is this not an experience that we all have from time to time as we walk with God? I mean, probably even perhaps right now, with this whole COVID-19, so just wonder, man, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm doing the prayer meetings, I'm, I'm staying in the Bible, I'm trying to remember you, God. I'm keeping you in remembrance. And yet, it just feels like it's getting worse. I just got the, you know, two weeks notice or whatever. They thought I was gonna be, you know, maybe one of the ones that made it through and now I lost my job. Or no, I just got news that my, you know, family member or whatever just got, came down with the virus and I'm worried or whatever it may be. I'm praying, I'm remembering and it seems like my way is hidden from you. It seems like you have forgotten me. So I don't think we are um, strangers to this whole idea. I think this idea of, of accusing God, feeling forgotten by God in the midst of trial is, is too often very real for us and an experience that we have more than we'd like to say. So that's the accusation piece. And now we kind of move into the second heading with this idea of temptation because with the accusation that God's forgotten uh, us or God's forgotten them, the Israelites, there's, there's always kind of this accompanying temptation. Um, and here I'm thinking in particular of uh, what we would call idolatry. And the move is quite simple. It, it really just kind of flows like this. If God has forgotten me, if God isn't here for me, well, let me just go find another God who can actually help. That's the move towards idolatry. That's the temptation that Israel would have been experiencing here. Um, Really, the temptation for them would have been twofold, I think. Uh, In one sense, uh, the concern with this whole captivity to Babylon, uh, the concern is to say, well, God's forgotten us. Uh, He's not here for us. But then there's this other element added to it uh, that if you lived in the ancient Near Eastern world, you would would understand. Um, The idea is if 
you and your God could take me and my God captive like this, well maybe it's not only true that God has forgotten us, but it's also true that your gods are simply more powerful, simply more superior, stronger than our God. So everything in the ancient world was seen as like this clash of deities. Uh, Everything was this battle between the gods. So if I became your captive, it's, it's not just that, man, I am less superior, I am weaker than you. It's also, man, my gods. My God, in the case of Israel, is, is less superior, is inferior, is weaker when compared to your gods. And so these are the sorts of things that they're feeling here as they remain kind of languishing in exile year after year. And they're starting to, I imagine, I other gods, I the gods around them. Kind of look at the buffet spread out among them there in Babylon. They're seeing how the Babylonians live. They're saying, man, things seem to be going well for them. Sure would like my life to look like that. Uh, Maybe I should consider bending my knee to that God. Seems to be working well for them. I mean, after all, what did following Yahweh ever get me but into this mess in the first place? Now, just disclaimer, Israel is, as we all always often are, I guess that doesn't make sense. Israel, as we pretty much always are, is wrong in this place in their estimation. They are thinking that God is against them. They're the innocent party. They're trying to be faithful when God's made it plain. Man, what they are doing there in exile is, it's not that God's lost the upper hand on the Babylonian gods. It's that they're suffering judgment like Isaiah warned them in chapters one through 39 of the book. But the temptation is to say, man, these gods must be superior. That's why my life's not going well. If I could just kind of grab a hold of some of that, get some of that magic going, then maybe things would fall into place for me. Um, Isaiah 41, verses five through seven, really kind of brings out this idea, shows how it works, at least as far as the nations are concerned. Uh, in, In this part of the chapter, Uh, Isaiah is talking about how Cyrus of Persia is being raised up and he's this threat to all the surrounding nations and peoples and as people are, are coming to face this threat, the very real threat that he could come upon them with his army there uh, from Persia, uh, here's what we read, here's what they're doing. So verse five, the coastlands have seen and they are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. And you go, what are they doing? Building walls? No. They're building idols. In case the language was lost on you here, the picture is these nations hearing that Persia and Cyrus and all this are coming against them. They're saying, what do we gotta do? Quick, we're, we're terrified. We better build more little trinket gods, more idols to bow down to. We need uh, something to set our hope on and bend our knee to. And Israel is starting to feel this way as well as they're looking out going, man, when? When are things gonna get better for 
us. Maybe we need to start building our own little idols. Maybe we need to start moving in that direction away from Yahweh like these other nations. Now, we might be prone or to think, okay, this is kind of for them there. This is, we're now like modern society. This is not something that we struggle with. None of us are, as far as I know, are, are bowing down to little statues. This is modern day America. We don't have those silly little things that we see happening here. Uh, but really, what we need to understand is that we actually do very much the same. We just have maybe our own sophisticated versions of it. It's almost kind of like uh, if you've seen a, a movie that's been redone, right? So maybe old school classic redone with modern technology. It may look a little different. It has color. It has a little bit more sound, a little bit more action, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, at the bottom, it's still the same script playing out on the screen, and that's really what we see with our own hearts. We may look and go, man, we're not struggling with idols, whatever, but actually, I think when we peer underneath that, we realize it is the same script. When it seems to us that, that God is, is not there for us, that, and we're afraid, or there's situations that have us kind of turned around and confused, the temptation always is uh, to think not only, God, you have uh, abandoned me, but now, hmm, maybe I better look for another God that will be there. We start eyeing the gods of the culture around us. We're tempted to bend our knee, just as Israel was, to other gods. So it might look something like this. Um, you know, maybe you've longed for that significant other for years and years and prayed and prayed on that and never seen God answer to this point. And as the years pile up, you feel more desperate and like God has abandoned you. And then your friend, who also was in the same boat, man, she just landed a killer catch. This guy is awesome. And you go, what did she do? How? In other words, what God did she bow to? And you start to realize, oh, okay. I see, she started wearing clothes that looked like this. She started showing a little bit more of her body. Maybe she started to kind of compromise some of her values and some of these things that God was asking, is asking us to stay true to. She just kind of blurred the line a bit. And so you start to feel tempted to bow to the idol, you might say, of beauty in those moments. But just follow that God a bit and see what it gets me. And so maybe you start wearing some of those clothes and maybe you get some of that plastic surgery or do some of those extensions, whatever it may be, to try to get what you want by going around God. He's not there for you anyways. Maybe, you know, money is a common one and, and I understand, man, not having money, it's hard. And so you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're going, man, uh, uh, this is causing stress. I mean, I got ulcers. I'm not sleeping. I, I, it's hard on my family. And you're looking out at, at maybe uh, some of those other guys, you know, in the city that have the high-end jobs. They got all this security, all this stuff. Even, even when COVID-19 came, they got all these safety nets. They're still good. They can always just buy themselves out of trouble if they need to. They're not stressed. They're not worried. And in those moments, you're tempted to bend your knee to the God of money, to the idol of money. Do whatever I gotta do. Forget worship on Sundays. If that's what they need me to work, I'll work. Forget, you know, just 
Forget kind of staying true to this or that uh, value. If I got to cut some corners to make it happen, if I got to cut people off to make it happen, I'm going to get the money because if I get the money, I get the comfort or I get the peace or I get the help that I'm longing for. We go around God and enlist another God who may in fact serve us better, we think. And, and really, this is, and we've brought this up numerous times, but we just have a, a uh, a profound cultural example of this going on around us right now. I mean, we're now, I don't know how, how many weeks into this, um, probably about five, six weeks into the shelter in place at least. And man, the grocery stores still aren't stocked, right? I mean, people are still hoarding. We were just fine before. But it's because we're afraid now, we feel like we gotta stock up. We gotta keep getting more than we actually need, whether it's toilet paper or it's you know hand sanitizer or it's flour or it's eggs or whatever else you can't find at the grocery store anymore. So we just kind of think, listen, if I get these things, listen, God's not gonna be there for me in the way I need him, but if I can grab a hold of this, I'll have security. I'll have security. And here's the interesting thing. In this last example, I think we actually kind of do have a modern day sort of ridiculous, silly sort of uh, example of what, bowing to little metal statues, thinking that it's gonna save us. You know, you've seen those little things, those little memes and stuff where the, the whole garage is full of toilet paper, whatever it is. And you go, man, this is how we survive. And it's like, it's not that far off from bowing down to a little statue, right? And so the same script is playing out in us. We may call our idols by different names, but at the bottom, it's really the same sort of thing. Essentially, idolatry is this. It's me looking to some other created thing to do for me what only God ultimately can. It's me looking to some other created thing to do for me what only God ultimately can. Idols never deliver. Not fully, maybe partially and momentarily, but not fully and lastingly. They never deliver, and again and again, Isaiah is gonna pick up that polemic, polemic in these chapters. I don't have time to really go there, but here's what I did want to bring out at least. The reason, I think, why idolatry is so appealing to us, why it's so tempting for us, why it's this temptation, as I'm calling it, in our times of trial, is that really these idols offer us kind of tantalizing opportunities to do an end run around the God of the Bible, where we can kind of get what we want when we want it without having to wait for him, submit to him, trust him, obey him, we could just get the God of the Bible with all his rules and all that stuff out of the picture and we can get what we want and we can get it now. At least that's the idea. And so what I want you to see is that at the end of the day, what we're dealing with here is actually the very same sort of thing I warned us against at the very beginning of this message. Though we may be running off after all manner of gods, it's really me right now who's getting bigger. 
It's, it's myself as I'm kind of elevating myself over the one true God, saying, I know better how to order my life. I know what to do. I'm not gonna go your way. I'm not gonna wait for you. I'm gonna do it on my own terms. So we may be chasing after other gods, but it's still the God of self that is ultimately uh, preeminent here and coming into the foreground. We're seeing not uh, more of God, but more of me and less of him. Get him out of here. Not, not here for us anyways. And when we're in this place and posture, God can't bring comfort. The comfort he declares in Isaiah 41, or 40 verse one, comes to those who say, man, flesh is grass. I just need to behold my God. So as long as we're saying, no, it's on me, and I got it, and I'm gonna figure this out with using this or that tool or this or that other God. Listen, as long as we're in that place, then we are, are keeping ourselves from the comfort God would wanna give us, the encouragement he would wanna bring, and even the redemption that he is wanting to work. And with that, we move into the third heading with this idea of redemption. And here, I'm gonna focus uh, back on Isaiah 41, verse 14. So let's read that verse one more time with all this now in the background. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Now, I'm gonna key all of my reflections under this last heading here, actually, off of this word worm, uh, because I assume that's kind of what jumps out at you. Probably as I read it, you're like, man, isn't he gonna address this? Or if you saw the title for this morning, uh, do not be afraid, you worm. That's the title of the sermon, and you're going, that's what I'm about to listen to? Well, gosh, that sounds encouraging. That sounds heartwarming. I can't wait to hear what's coming my way. No, probably what you were feeling is, man, who does this pastor think he is calling me a worm? What in the world gives him the right to start saying this sort of thing? And admittedly, I, I would have thought that such an idea would uh, not be encouraging either. I would have never had the boldness to put that in a sermon title or to call us worms had God himself not done it first and forced me to wrestle with the implications of it. And what is he really getting at here? When you do that, you start to find, man, maybe there is good news in the midst of this. Maybe there is comfort in the midst of this after all. But first, we have to deal with uh, the word itself. Um, and there's just no way around it. It's not flattering. It, 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 it's not uh, endearing. The Hebrew can refer to various kinds of insect larvae, uh, none of which are cute and nice and cuddly. Uh, worms, it could be maggots, it could be grubs, uh, things like that. And whenever this word is used in uh, the scriptures, in the Old Testament, it's always negative. I'll give you pretty much every example of it uh, right now. Um, in Exodus 16.20, it refers to the worms that would spoil the manna if the Israelites tried to keep uh, the manna for an extra day. These worms would spoil it. In Deuteronomy 28.39 and Jonah 4.7, it refers to worms who kind of destroy crop and plant. In Job 25.6, it's used with a reference to the sorry estate of man before God that were just like little grubs before him. 
Uh, Isaiah 14, 11, uh, it's referring to worms that cover a man when he comes down from his pompous heights and is laid in the grave, and worms are like his covering. That just sounds nice, right? Uh, Isaiah 66, 24, uh, the the word is used to refer to a final judgment in hell and this everlasting torment where we're told that the worm never dies. So there's just no way of coming at this and going, oh, God is saying we're just like these cute little creatures that he wants to cuddle. No, it's not flattering. It's it's humbling. Uh, it, it doesn't make us feel warm and fuzzy. It might even make us feel a bit mad, a bit um, offended, right? We don't like hearing such things about ourselves. Um, Megs and I, it's interesting, we, we were, uh, we've just kind of started watching that show on Netflix, The Crown, uh, about uh, Queen Elizabeth and things. And uh, we just reached the place the other night where they're talking about how Winston Churchill, um, he, he's about to turn 80. He's prime minister at the time. So they kind of enlist this guy to do this portrait to celebrate his birthday. And uh, as the guy, the artist is kind of starting to paint and Winston's sitting there with his cigar and his whiskey or whatever, uh, you can tell Winston starts to get um, anxious about kind of what is this painting gonna look like? What's it gonna present of me to the public? How is, how is this gonna be captured? How am I going to be remembered? And so he starts going back and forth with the artist saying, listen, make sure you highlight the stuff that's endearing. Make sure you highlight my good side. Don't show my weaknesses. Don't show my, my frailties or at least underplay those. Don't, don't, don't emphasize the toll that age and politics and war has taken on me. In other words, he's essentially begging him, don't show me as I really am here. Don't show me as I am in reality. Don't put me in an honest and humbling light. And it's interesting because when the painting is finally unveiled to him, he hates it. And he doesn't hate it because it's not true to life. He hates it because it is true to life. He hates it because he looks old and he looks dying because he looks 80 because he doesn't look like the prime minister that he wants people to remember him as. And so he doesn't even put it up on his wall in his house and rumor has it his wife later burns it. But this is kind of how we can feel when God comes and says, fear not, you worm, Jacob. Who are you? Don't talk to me that way. What, you're calling me weak? You're saying I'm small? You're saying I'm insignificant? I'm gonna burn that portrait. I'm not gonna hang that up on my wall and look at that. I don't wanna hear that. But I just wanna say, don't burn the portrait just yet. Let's hear God out for a moment. Let's see what he's trying to get at with this. So I want to ask a question now that will really take us to the end of this message. And um, that question is this. What is God doing here? Why does he refer to us in this way? Why is he calling us worms, even in the midst of saying, do not be afraid? What is he trying to do? What is he getting at? Is he, is he mad at us? 
Is he trying to scold us or shame us? Is he um, name calling and trash talking, kind of like those bullies maybe in the playground back when you were growing up? Or now you see the bullies come out on the playground of Twitter, right? Name calling happening all the time. Is that what this is? What is he doing when he says, fear not, you worm, Jacob? Now, to um, answer this, I really have four things I'm going to bring out, and obviously I'm going to do that quickly. Four kind of part answer to this question. What is he doing with this? And I hope by the end you realize he's up to good. Answer number one, he wants us to see the impotency of our own idols and efforts. He wants us to see the impotency of our own idols and efforts. God's redemption can only begin for us when once we've finally given up on all else. He he can't get started. He can't take us where he wants to take us if he can't get us to this place of surrender, of submission, of humility, where we are clay in his hands. So long as we think we've got it, we don't. He can't work with that. We tend to move from idol to idol to idol. We think, man, that one didn't work, but surely that one will. No, that one didn't work, surely that one will. And we keep trying to do that end run around God to get what we want without submission, obedience, trust, faith. But what ends up happening, hopefully over time, is eventually you lose, you lose heart in it. You come to a place where you just say, enough is enough. I'm not going to fill this. I'm not going to fix this. I don't have the resources to make this happen. It's not in me. I'm small. I'm insignificant. I'm weak. A lot more than I wanted to admit at the start. I thought I had the game plan. I don't. I am sure all of our personal testimonies probably begin with something like this. Now, I thought I was awesome. Something happened in my life. Realized, not awesome. Not awesome at all. Need help desperately. I got smaller. And all my idols got smaller too. See, that is kind of the prerequisite to the redemptive work of God in the soul of man. Gotta come off, kind of stop vying for the throne and come down before the one who truly reigns. And that moves us then into answer number two. So the first idea is that, man, we gotta see we're in the dirt. We gotta see, we're just like worms wriggling around in the dirt. We don't have what it takes. But then answer number two comes in like this. He wants us not only to see the impotency of our own idols and efforts, he also wants us to see the difference between ourselves and him. So as he's lowering us, he's also trying to show us something loftier, something else. He's trying to put before us an even more beautiful reality. He wants us to see something of him. So you notice in our text, Isaiah 41, 14 again, God refers to himself in particular as the Holy One. Now when God refers to himself in this way, he is really setting himself apart. That's the idea of holiness is, listen, I'm set apart from these other things. And he's accenting the fact here that, okay, while you are worms in the dirt, I am God in the heavens. 
I mean, you're as low as it could be. I am as high as it can be. And if you, I mean, I, I had so much more I wanted to do with this, but man, if you just stop sometime this week or even this afternoon and read Isaiah chapter 40, you see God just doing this in unbelievable, just technicolor, going into how sovereign, how great, how high he is in comparison to everything else. There is no man, no other God like him. In fact, one verse I'd bring out because it's kind of similar to ours is Isaiah 40, verse 22, where God says this, it is he who sits, or I guess it's Isaiah maybe, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So there you go. You don't like worms because they're gross and wriggly and slimy. You can be a grasshopper if you want. But in either case, the point is clear. God is up here and we are down low. Now, Answer number three starts to move towards good news. Why does he call us worms? Well, because he wants us to know that, man, our own, our own gods and our own efforts are impotent. They're, they're not going to work. He wants us to start to see how different he is from us. But then he also, now number three, wants us to know where true help can be found. So to this point, if I were just to stop with answer number two, you go, man, this is nothing good about this at all, Nick. You said good news and comfort was coming. All you did was say, ha, human beings, you're in the dirt, and God, I'm up here, right? And we just go, oh, okay, that's great. Thanks for accentuating the gap and the difference. That's very nice. I'm so encouraged now knowing that I'm down here and you're way up there. But you see, you have to move to now this third part to the answer, and we start to come to why this is so important, why this is so comforting, why this is such good news. The point that God has been after in all of this has been to help us see where in our troubles and times of exile, true help can actually be found. So when you're getting crushed and you're kind of prone to think, man, I gotta get bigger, I gotta rise up and figure out what to do, I gotta find the right idols because God's taking too long. When you're in that place, he's saying, listen, remember, you are a worm in the dirt, I am God in heaven, and I am where your help can be found. You don't want to enlist all these other things down here under the sun, enlist the one who exists over the sun, who put the sun in its place, enlist him for help, I'm right here, I'm not just high above the heavens. Now I'm coming right down into the dirt with you. So in our text, Isaiah 41, 14, let me bring out this side to the answer. I am the one who helps you, he says. Right after calling us a worm, he says, listen, don't mistake that as just trash talk or me shaming you or getting you out of the picture. I, I'm, I'm moving towards helping you here. I am the one who helps you. Your redeemer, your redeemer is the holy one of Israel. I'm not just holy and set apart. I'm coming near and redeeming. That's what he's wanting to make crystal clear. I am the one who can truly help when you are in times of need. I'm with you in the dirt. And this has really been the message throughout these chapters in this section of Isaiah. 
uh, it's been incredible because God is in these chapters, especially I'm thinking of 40, 41, 42, he's, he's showing how high and mighty he is and yet how low and with his people he is. So Isaiah 40, 11. Just rifle through a couple of these. Isaiah 40, 11, after talking about the might and the strong arm of the Lord, Isaiah tells us, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So he's not just strong. He's tender and kind and near. He's not just above it all. He's present with you like a little sheep. Now that, that's cuter, right? We'll take sheep. At the end of Isaiah 40, I mean, some of the more, most famous verses in all of the Bible, he's talking about how, you know, God is, is, is mighty. God uh, is the everlasting God. He doesn't grow faint. He doesn't grow weary. And then what we see is that, man, he takes that strength. That is, that is properly belonging just to him and him alone, and he in grace gives it to his people. It's not just to accentuate the gap. The point of accentuating the gap is to show you clearly he's the one who has strength. Don't look around, it's him. And he's happy and ready to give it, to provide it. Whoops. So we read verses 30, 31. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The stuff that was God's, he's giving to us. The strength is found in him. He said, man, I am where help is found. And we could just keep going. Isaiah 41 starts to go into all this too, even after our text. But really what I wanted to land on, or I guess you could say what I wanted to climax to, is there in Isaiah 42, is it's awesome, it's amazing. While God is saying, man, I'm great and mighty and I'm right here in the dirt with you, he, he ultimately kind of brings us to the fullest expression of this when we cross the boundaries into Isaiah chapter 42 and we come to the first of what are referred to as the servant songs. And there in those opening verses, what we see is that God is gonna send one who is called a servant. The servant of God is gonna come and the Holy Spirit will be upon him and the Father will be pleased with him. And he's not going to take a, a bruised reed and break it. He's not gonna take a smoldering wick and quench it. He's going to be gentle. He's gonna be with his people in the midst of their pain and he's gonna work for their justice and their redemption. And we know, we know he's talking about Jesus. We know he's talking about the one who will come, step into humanity take on our sin, go to the cross, die, rise again, so we could be brought back to God, so the gap could be uh, forged, uh, shrunk, so that we now, our dwelling place can be with him. You see, this is what's so awesome. Jesus really is infinitely high above us. We really are infinitely set below. The, the gap between us really does expand forever, and yet the incarnation is God comes down off the throne and gets in the dirt with the worms. In fact, there's one text I did not bring out 
back when I was listing out the various you know, texts that use the word for worm in the Old Testament. It's Psalm 22, six. And what we're gonna see here is that Jesus doesn't just get in the dirt with the worms. He becomes a worm. So Psalm 22, famous prophetic psalm, uh, looking forward to really the death of the Son of God on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself quotes from it there as he's hanging. You, you're, you're probably familiar with the way the psalm begins, Psalm 22, verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how it begins, and it just gets even this more vivid picture of the crucifixion, and you go, wow, how could this have been written so long before Jesus would come? Well, it's everything has been pointing to this moment when God would come down be with us in our pain, take on our exile and the curse of our sin and the wrath of God and all this stuff, and he would make himself a worm on our behalf. So Psalm 22, six, the suffering servant cries out, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. This is where the gospel really comes in full HD. You see, it's not just God helping us from heaven every now and then he'll stoop down. No, it's God comes down into the dirt. He is the worm, he takes on the cross, he takes on all the insignificance and all the weakness and all the frailty and all the sin takes it on himself, meets us in that place, and then explodes out of it. New possibility for you and I, with this Holy Spirit. This is why, man, the beginning of Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people. This is how we find it. This is where it comes from. The Holy One becomes our Redeemer, the King of Kings, our servant. God becomes a worm to help us, to comfort us. It's not going to be, I'll just kind of end with, with, with this. Um, it's really just answer number four, which is why, why is God calling us a worm? Why is he doing that to my ego? Listen, the, 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 the final kind of end goal here, the upshot of it all is he wants us to be comforted and unafraid in our trials. That's why our text begins, Isaiah 41, 14, fear not. The point of this is, I don't want you to be afraid. Listen, you're smaller than you think, I'm bigger than you think, and I'm more present and ready to help you than you could ever imagine. Fear not. That's what's going on here. Less of me, more of him, and from the two realities kind of colliding, flow this comfort and this help and this peace. And so I just leave you with a consideration, where are you with this? Where are you right now trying to find that comfort? What are you, are you trying to get bigger? Are you trying to find those idols, enlist their service, get to what you want by doing an end run around God? Or are you ready to stop with the games, stop with the lies, own up to reality? I may be small, but he is big and he's right here. Own up to that, don't burn the portrait. Let God show you who you really are and let him show you who re he really is. Let him show you how he can bring more comfort in these moments than you ever thought possible. Praying for you. I love you. Bless you guys. Let me pray. Jesus, right now, for those watching, God, I pray that you would minister. I pray that you would call them away 
away from the accusations, away from the temptation to idolatry, that they would trust you, that they would return to you and find their life, find their comfort, find their joy there. Lord, I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, don't forget to uh, come hang out with Peter, myself, and others from Mercy Hill uh, in the after party. There should be a Zoom link that we'll be posting um, right there in the chat bar so you can find it there or in the event that uh, you probably logged on to this from online. But bless you guys, and I hope to see you face-to-face soon.